Well, just before we dig into our passage this morning, um, there was a question on a blue slip last week, um, which uh, if somebody asks a question, we'll generally do a Q&A before the, uh, the talk. So last week we were talking about Paul presenting uh, the Gentiles as a, a priestly offering. And the question is, are all believers priests of the gospel, offering sanctified Gentiles to God like Paul? Is there any distinction between our priesthood and his? What I want to say is that, firstly, the Bible does teach that all Christians are priests. Uh, there is the priesthood of all believers. All of us actually share uh, in that. It's not that the church has no priests. It's that actually all of us are priests. And all of us do have priestly duties in that sense. There is a way that we reflect that in the way that we live as Christians. One of the ways that the Bible talks about it a little bit is uh, in terms of us being ambassadors for the gospel. Uh, that idea of an ambassador is similar to the idea of a priest who sort of stands between uh, someone and someone else. So our, our life as a Christian does have a sort of priestly quality to it. Is ours the same as Paul? Well, I want to sort of cast a note of hesitation on that, just because Paul is a sort of special case. He tells you in that passage, he makes a big deal of the fact that he is apostle to the Gentiles. So he was specifically set apart by the Lord Jesus when he was converted to go to the Gentiles as, as his special envoy, if you like. So we haven't got exactly the same ministry as the Apostle Paul. So just there might be some differences between it there. But on the other hand, we do still have that priestly ministry, uh, bringing the good news of God to the whole world, um, acting as priests uh, for God. So I hope that helps. And uh, if you've got a follow-up on that, come and grab me afterwards or uh, stick another blue slip. Uh, in the box. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, Lord, thank you uh, for the Bible. Father, thank you, Lord, for gifts of teaching. Father, thank you that we can learn more about you and how you want us to be. Father, pray this morning as we look into this passage, speak to us, uh, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Do you ever get the feeling that God is telling you something? That there's something that he wants you to know as I was preparing the message this week, I started to have the feeling that I preached this part of the Bible sometime before. Our first part, especially when I was coming up with the headings, I was sort of thinking about sort of, we see here there's brothers and sisters and they're working together. It's sort of a family on a mission. I thought, I'm sure I've heard that somewhere before. And it suddenly dawned on me, hang on, yeah, that was my heading a few weeks ago uh, when we were looking at Mark's Gospel, when we were looking at the Twelve Disciples. Our final heading in that talk was family on a mission. Now either it's finally happened that I've run out of headings <laughs> and there's no more headings to, to have, or God is trying to tell us something. Because what we see in our passage right here at the end of Romans is a family who are on a mission, who are working together for the gospel. And what we see here in many ways is a real life picture of what the twelve disciples were pointing to. They were obviously real life as well, but they were pointing forward to what was to come. What we see here is the fulfilment of that promise, the outcome of what was begun there. And it's tempting to just write this bit of Romans off, you know, you've got all the names, nobody wants to read all the names. You sort of think, you know, this is sort of Paul signing off. But actually, what he wants us to show, what he wants us to see is a Christian community on mission. What a Christian community looks like in the New Testament. And what we see is a loving, diverse family on a mission. And that's what we see in our first point. A loving, 
diverse family on a mission. Now, I'm not going to read those verses again, uh, but you might find it helpful to, to glance down at them. But uh, we see an awful uh, lot of names there. Now, I'm a big fan of Popmaster uh, on Radio 2. I don't know if you're Popmaster fans. It's my ambition at some point I will go on it. But every time I've just about decided I'm going to go on it, I listen and I try, and I get like three points out of 39. So I, I convince myself that I shouldn't. But it can be tempting to think that this is a bit like Popmaster. Because on Popmaster, they get 30 seconds at the end, and they can give a shout-out to all their friends. And some people, oh, you know, say hello to so-and-so, say hello to so-and-so, and anybody else who knows me. And it's tempting to think that's all that Paul is doing. He's just sort of doing a shout-out on Popmaster. But it's more than that. And actually, as we go through this, we're going to see so many themes that we've seen in the second half of the letter being picked up. In many ways, it's grounding much of what we've seen in the teaching in Romans. We're not going to go through each person one by one, but we're going to look at some of the phrases that Paul uses again and again as we go through. So firstly, love. They're a loving community. And we met that theme in chapter 13, when we were to love one another and so fulfil the law. Four of them here are described as beloved Paul wants to say how much he loves them. And the word there for love is the strongest word that you've got in the Bible for love, love agape. He really loves them. It's the word that is used of God's love towards us in the Bible. So he expresses his love for them. They're also told to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now there's been lots of confusion around this, um, but it's probably just what you'd expect. A kiss is a sign of affection. It might be in a family, we'll come to that in a minute, but in the Gospels, Jesus rebukes a man called Simon the Pharisee for not kissing him in greeting when he came to his house. So it'd be strange to rebuke him for not kissing him if that was just confined to families, wouldn't it? It would be less strange if not kissing him was a sign, um, uh, was a sign that he was not accepting him not welcoming him. That's what it meant by not kissing him, that actually that was a sign that he was not uh, giving him his proper welcome. But a kiss is a sign of affection. Probably a kiss on the cheek, like the French do, although Covid has sort of put that to, uh, to uh, stop at the moment. But even by the second century, Christian leaders were having to lay down some rules about this, being quite the truth this week, uh, looking into it. Uh, the kiss became a formal part of Sunday gatherings, a bit like some churches do the peace. But some Christians apparently were demanding that others kiss them on the lips with open mouths. Don't worry, I'm not going to be suggesting, <laughs> suggesting that for uh, morning meetings. That's not a sign of brotherly affection, is it? Or a loving greeting. That's sort of abuse, isn't it? Where someone says, oh, the Bible says you've got to give me a holy kiss, come on. You know... <laughs> So it became regulated so that just members of the same sex kissed each other and with closed mouths. But as he's talking about kissing, he's not talking about some formal ritualised thing that sort of a section in the Sunday morning. It was supposed to be a sign of love and acceptance between believers. A kiss with the lips is a sign of holy love that's in the heart. So the big question is, well, does it apply now? Yes. But it will differ from culture to culture. So in France, they might want to actually kiss one another. Uh, I remember going to, a, uh, when I was in France, I went to a French church. It could take quite a long time uh, to get ready. You have to go in, you have to kiss everybody when you got there. 
Being unwelcome was very weird. <laughs> you'd have to kiss complete strangers at the door. Especially without beards, that was very strange. But uh, it looked quite differently in different cultures. But however we show genuine love and affection in our culture, that should be reflected in our greeting of one another and in our relationships in church. It might be a holy handshake. It might be a, a holy hug. It might just be a holy hearty hello. But what it should do is show that genuine holy love that you have in your heart for each other. And don't abuse it. Don't make others feel uncomfortable with how you do it. Because that's not loving really either, is it? But what we see here is a, a company that love one another. A community that care for one another. A loving community. The second thing we see is that they're a diverse group. This really picks on upon what we saw in chapters 14 and 15 last week. The names that we've got there are a mixture of Roman names, Greek names, and Hebrew names. And one of the names in Greeks means Persian, so we can probably guess where they're from. There are a mixture of common names, like slave names and rich person names. My favourite one that I found out this week, I'm quite into name meanings, I really hope I don't meet someone called Nereus, because their name means wet lump. <laughs> what parent would do that? It's probably a slave name. It's probably a nickname given to a slave. But we've got that, and then we've got Aristobulus, which means best counsellor. So, you know, you get the impression they were quite important. We've also got people who are city dwellers and country dwellers. So, Urbanus means city dweller. And the very next name, Statis, means head of grain. Gives the impression that they're from the countryside. Of the 29 people mentioned here, 10 are women. That's over a third. How does that compare with something, say, the UK Parliament? Well, women have been in Parliament since 1918, and it was only at the last general election that it reached the same percentage that Paul has got here with women that he mentions, just over a third. Paul was way ahead of his time. There are also a mixture of Jewish background Christians and Gentile background Christians. At least six of those mentioned here are Jewish background Christians. It could be more, but it's not mentioned. But it's been a big concern in his letter, hasn't it, that Jew and Gentile get on, that both groups uh, get on with one another. And Paul here greets both parties, both groups. He shows no partiality. Now, people debate why Paul mentions so many people. And I think it's in part to make this point that there's a diverse group there. And to show that he shows no partiality, no prejudice, no racism. He includes as many groups as he can to get in as many groups as he can. It's a bit like at the, uh, the FIEC. I love the FIEC. Uh, every year when it's on, I go to the FIEC Leaders Conference. Um, we're part of the FIEC, Church of 650-odd churches in the UK. And every year there's a Leaders Conference with about 800 leaders there, um, pre-COVID. But they have this thing in the first meeting where they have a slot where they do that. Have we got anybody from... And they do Scotland, and you get this big cheer. And then Wales, yeah. Southwest, yeah. London, southeast, yeah. Northwest, yeah. Northeast, yeah. And then they stop. And there's all the people from Yorkshire <laughs> sat there, normally in a big group, <laughs> tutting. But you feel a bit left out, don't you, if that happens? If everybody else gets mentioned, I've, I've raised it with them. Um, <laughs> generally happy. Um, you get a bit left out, don't you? If they don't mention your area, if they don't mention your people, 
Well, that's what Paul wants to avoid here. He's trying to mention as many of the different groups as he can. He doesn't want anybody to feel that they've been left out. He wants to show that he's caring for all of them. So the church in Rome is a microcosm, a miniature version of what the church should be. A real diverse mixture of people who have we seen love one another within that mixture. But it's more than that, isn't it? They're a family. They're a family. All the way through the second half of the letter, Paul has been calling them brothers. The Greek word there can include sisters, so those translations that include it aren't just being PC, it can mean that as well. He calls Phoebe in verse 1, our sister. She's not just loved, she's family. She's a sister. And family are far more than people, just people that we love. They're people who stick with us, who are bound to us in a way stronger than friends. Blood is thicker than water, they say. Well, the church is united by the blood of Christ. Paul says that Rufus's mother is not just Rufus's mother, but she's been a mother to Paul. It's like she's adopted Paul into a family. And you can imagine that, can't you? How she looked after him. I became a Christian just as I was about to become a teenager and people at church sort of adopted me as part of their family. It was really lovely. I was around people's houses every week. They invited me to their birthdays, their anniversaries, to New Year's Eve. Went on trips together to the seaside. It was lovely. I always imagined that's the sort of relationship Paul had with Rufus's family. You know, they welcomed him as their own. And in verse 14, Christian, the Christians just refer to as brothers. That's sort of the normal phrase for it. He uses the same phrase for all believers in Rome in verse 17. And these are the sorts of relationships that are normal within a church. We're united by Christ's blood. We've been adopted into his family. So we're brothers, we're sisters. We're mothers, we're fathers, we're aunts, we're uncles. That's who we are in Christ. Do we reflect that in the way that we interact with each other? Do we reflect that in the way that we treat one another? Church is not a club where we come to see each other once a week. It's a family. And that means our lives should be interconnected. The ties that bind us should be stronger. We bear one another's burdens. We have one another's backs. We're a family. That's what we see. And then the final thing that marks out this group is that they're on a mission. They're on a mission. This is what we saw back at the beginning of chapter 12. Working together as a body. Laying down our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Seven of those listed here are mentioned as workers or fellow workers or those who have worked hard for other people. Phoebe is described as a patron, a sponsor of Paul and of many others. She's given sacrificially to the work of the gospel. She's also mentioned as a servant of the church in a town near Corinth where Paul was. The word servant there is literally deacon. But since deacon literally means servant, it's a bit ambiguous, isn't it? She could be a deacon if there were female deacons there. Or she could be just someone who's helping the church in various ways. Hopefully those two are not, in, are not completely unconnected. Either way, here she's serving the church by travelling hundreds of miles to deliver Paul's letter to Rome. Priscilla and Aquila were told risked their necks for Paul. Possibly while Paul was in Ephesus and there was a riot about the church putting Artemis out of business. That's Artemis the Greek goddess, not the previous shop that used to own uh, here. <laughs> 
But they put their necks out on the line for their brother, for the sake of the mission. They've also got a church meeting in their house, which I imagine must be quite a sacrifice. Imagine all the putting out all the chairs and sorting out all the different things. All the churches of the Gentiles give thanks for them. Which is pretty amazing as well, because they're actually Jews. Yet here they've worked for the good of their Gentile brothers and sisters, but sacrificially giving for them. Andronicus and Junior in verse 7 were told they've been to prison at some point, presumably for the gospel. Now there's some debate, but I would say from the evidence that Junior is a woman, but that she wasn't an apostle. Apostles with a capital A, so to speak, were appointed witnesses of the resurrection, sent into the wider world to establish the faith, to build a solid foundation for the church. The word is occasionally used in scripture just of someone who is sent, like a messenger. And the word is sometimes translated that way, even in the King James, in places like Philippians 2 and 2 Corinthians 8. Here, though, I think it is meant Apostles capital A, but this couple, like the ESV translates it, were well known by the Apostles, not among the Apostles themselves. They had marked themselves out with such sacrificial service that they were often on the minds of the Apostles. And whether you think Junior was an Apostle or not, here is a remarkable woman who has sacrificially given of herself for the sake of the gospel, even willing to go to prison for it. We should never downplay the contribution women have made to the gospel over the years, and Paul certainly doesn't. But all these people are on a mission together, along with the guys that Paul mentions in 21 to 24. They are working for the same cause, the cause of the gospel. Their primary identity, their number one thing, is the gospel. They are those who are in Christ, who are in the Lord. That's the most used term in the whole thing, 11 times. So they are a loving, diverse family on a mission, the mission of the gospel. And that is what we are to be too. It's a picture of what the church is to be. But Paul is worried that their mission might be derailed, that it might be taken in by evil forces, And so our next point, they're a loving, diverse family on a mission who are to shun evil. Let me read to you verses 17 to 20 again. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's a bit of a gear change here in 17 to 20. So much so that people have suggested this is a later addition to the letter. There's no textual evidence for that. There's no manuscripts without this in. And actually, like the verses before, it revisits the themes that we've seen in the second half of the letter. He warns them about those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Those in chapter 14 who he said just won't let go of things that are secondary. Who take minor issues and cause major division in the church. Those who go out of their way to put stumbling blocks in the way of their brothers and sisters. Avoid them, says Paul. If they have an unhealthy interest in creating divisions and quarrels, 
best to give them a wide berth. And it fits with what we read elsewhere. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, Timothy is told the same thing, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and captured weak-willed women, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They sound quite shocking, don't they? Saying avoid them. And yet Paul says of them in the verse before, having the appearance of godliness. It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? They look godly. They look studious and concerned with the word, always learning. Yet they lead astray, causing divisions and causing people to stumble. The picture that's painted here is of false teachers seeking disciples. And they'll flatter and flirt to get you on side. They pose as your best buddy, when in fact they're your worst nightmare. As Proverbs says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. They're always flattering, they're always seeking to get you. That said, if leaders never say anything nice or lifting or positive to you, that's probably not a good sign either. But Paul seems to think here that the problem that the Romans have is that they're so obedient, he praises them for their obedience, that they might end up obeying people who will lead them astray. Paul in Corinth has had to deal with false apostles, making themselves out to be legit leaders, when actually they're anything but, who are out for gain and glory lining their own pockets rather than laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel, filling their bellies with other people's food rather than feeding the flock with the word. Perhaps it's these that Paul has in mind as he writes to uh, the Romans from Corinth. Whoever Paul has in mind, he wants the Romans to have nothing to do with them. He wants them not to be naive, but wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And if they're unsure what that looks like, the good, or Paul has just spent several chapters explaining what that looks like, what a godly life looks like. And Paul is confident that they'll resist. You see the first half of verse 20? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This relates back to a prophecy made in Genesis 3, where God promised that he would crush the serpent's head. So he said to Eve in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall uh, bruise your uh, so he shall bruise your head. Sorry, he said this to the serpent. Sorry, <laughs> uh, he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now we often think of Christ fulfilling that prophecy, and he did. He is the serpent crusher who will crush Satan's head. But as we saw in verses 1 to 16, Christians are those who are in Christ. And in Christ, believers become serpent crushers. Often when we talk about our being in Christ, we focus on the suffering, sharing in his suffering. And we do. We are bruised, as he has talked about here, as Christ was bruised. We are bruised, but we're also bruising. As we resist the devil's schemes to divide us and lead us astray. As we as a church live in peace, as we reflect the God of peace, as we take up our cross and lay down our lives for one another, we crush Satan under our feet. The devil cannot destroy us, but he can divide us. The devil cannot defeat us, but he can deceive us. Paul wants the Romans to know that he is confident that Satan will soon be crushed under their feet as they follow the pattern of Christ, as they overcome 
How do we overcome? How do they overcome? By grace. By grace. It's no mistake that the next part of that verse goes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's not the end of the letter, he's not signing off. Nor is it a mistake that it's the God who crushes Satan, not us. It's under our feet that it's the God of peace that does the crushing. So we start by grace in the Christian life and we carry on by grace. The grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, as Paul writes to Titus. The gospel that delivers us, develops us, grows us, strengthens us. And that's our final point. And be strengthened by the gospel. Be strengthened by the gospel. Let me read to you verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings that have been made known to the nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Now to get our heads around this, we need to get our heads around that phrase, according to. It's the Greek word kata. And it's probably better translated here by, by, or as by, rather than according to. And it's used as the word by 40 times in the New Testament. And it's more helpful to read it like that. So it becomes this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you by my gospel and preaching of Jesus Christ, by the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for ages, long ages but has now been disclosed, by the eternal command, sorry, the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, so the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. He's saying that it's the gospel that does these things. And those are three ways of referring to the same thing, the gospel, Paul's gospel, what he's been explaining to the Romans. That's what he's talking about. And it's there to strengthen us. The gospel doesn't just save us, it strengthens us, it establishes us, it keeps us going. The gospel is not just something that unbelievers need to hear to be converted, though that's true. It's something that believers need to hear to keep going. As believers, we still need to hear the good news about Jesus. We still need to hear about that righteousness that comes through faith alone, that Paul has been batting on about for 16 chapters. As believers, we don't start with the gospel and move on to something else. We live in the gospel of grace. We abide in salvation through faith alone. So often when problems arise in the life of a Christian, it's because we've moved on from the gospel in one direction or another. We no longer think we need to hear it or to heed it. The gospel becomes something that we preach to unbelievers, not something that we preach to ourselves. Does that ring true with you? We never outgrow the gospel. And getting stronger does not mean we move on from it. It means we move deeper into it. Look at how Paul describes it here. Verse 25a, the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's saying you need to hear about Jesus. That strengthens you. And if it hasn't got Jesus in it, it's not the gospel. 
The content of the gospel is Jesus and about him. That's what we need to hear to be strengthened. So Paul can write in Colossians, Colossians 1.28, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If we want to grow in maturity, if we want to be strengthened in our faith, we need to hear about Jesus. <laughs> Spurgeon's often quoted on this. He said, No Christ in your sermon, sir. Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Or again, a sermon without Christ in is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. Or, you do not really preach the gospel if you leave Christ out. If he be omitted, it is not the gospel. You may invite men to listen to your message, but you are only inviting them to gaze upon an empty table unless Christ is at the very centre and substance of all that you set before them. We need to keep hearing about Jesus. We never move on from the gospel, which means that we keep needing to go back to our Lord Jesus Christ. How else is it described? 25 and 26, it's described as the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings have made, been made known to the nations. The gospel there is described as a mystery, a secret that has now been disclosed and made known through the prophetic writings. What Paul is referring to there is almost certainly not the New Testament, but the Old Testament. As Paul was writing, most of the New Testament hadn't been written. And this little section parallels the opening section of Romans like a mirror. And there it said in Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the prophetic writings that he's talking about. And he's now saying that the secret is out, now that the gospel has been disclosed. It's been made known to the nations through the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures are out there, and now we have the key to unlock them, Christ. In the light of Christ, the Old Testament preaches the gospel. That's why we don't need to be embarrassed about the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament can strengthen us too. Because we understand it now in the light of Christ. When we talk about preaching Christ, that doesn't mean we leave out the Old Testament. But it does affect how we preach the Old Testament. No gospel in your Old Testament, sir, I think Spurgeon would say. Then go home and look again for Christ. The final way that the gospel is described is there in verse 30, uh, sorry, 26. The command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. This gospel that we're talking about brings about faith. And faith is not just how we start in the Christian life, it's the way that we live it. The righteous will live by faith. That in one sense has been the verse that Paul's been expounding all the way through the letter. And that living by faith has been the theme since the beginning of chapter 12. God wants us to have faith in him, to trust him, to trust in what he's done for us in Christ. Not just for our place in glory, but for our lives now. We are saved by faith, and we live by faith. From faith, for faith, as Paul put it back in chapter 1. God has given us one gospel that not just brings us to life, but changes our life. By God's Spirit, it produces faith and helps us to live by faith. How clever is our God to do that with one gospel? How wise, how wonderful 
that he can take sinners to glory, that he can turn lives around, all without compromising his justice or righteousness, so that we have no need to be ashamed of this gospel. It's the very power of God for salvation for all who believe, that brings us salvation and brings him glory because of what Jesus has done. No wonder he finishes with the words, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And maybe in the end that's what God is telling us. Maybe different for each one of us what God's been telling us through Romans. But Paul finishes his letter with the pinnacle. Do you remember at the beginning we swapped our glory for other things? We weren't bringing glory, we fell short of the glory of God. Well here now finally, the glory goes to God and forevermore and through Jesus Christ. So, let's pray that as a diverse, loving family, on a mission, saved by grace, shunning evil, strengthened by the gospel, that all the glory goes to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gospel that not only saves us, but changes us. Father, pray that you'd help us to be and to, to reflect the fact that we are a loving, diverse family on a mission. Father, help us as we live day by day to shun evil and to hold on to what is good, to be strengthened by the gospel. And help us, Father, as we help strengthen each other, as we push one another on, as we spur one another on out of love for one another. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.